All right, turn to Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. We are excited to start a new series, and yes, it's a white page instead of a black page. Switching it up. I wanted to use highlighters instead of under, and underlining, so it gives me some more versatility there. Uh, but uh, turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews if you have your Bible with us, like I mentioned, if you're able to. Uh, it would be good for you to have the, the whole book in front of you so that you can uh, flip back and forth with us as we, uh, as we go through this study together. Um, this is something that we've been pointing to for a few weeks and uh, encourage you to uh, actually spend some time looking through the book yourself. Um, anyone have a chance to actually read some or all of the book before tonight? All right, we have a few. Good. And uh, that'll, I think that'll really help us as we, as we d go through this book um, to have a familiarity with, with what God is, is saying through here and, uh, and, 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 and uh, have an understanding of, of what the book is trying to teach. Um, the book of Hebrews is a f just a, a fascinating book. It is, a, it is a deep book. It's a doctrinal book. And at times, it's a really complicated book. Uh, there's some things in here that, uh, that kind of make you scratch your head a little bit. Uh, in fact, there's at one point in the book, the, the, the author says, you know, I wish I could go deeper, but you all are still in like the milk stage instead of the meat stage. And I, I wish I could go deeper and you should be teachers, but you still need to be taught, right? So he wants to go even deeper than he, than he does, but it's a deep book. Um, at times it's, it's a perplexing one in that there's some passages that are, are sometimes troubling to people. Uh, these are known as the warning passages in the book of Hebrews. And uh, sometimes you read through them, and it sounds like, when you read it, this sounds like someone losing their salvation, right? And uh, we'll look at those, and, and, and I'll just say right now, it's not what it's saying, but uh, it, it's, it's definitely something that takes some time to really dig through and think about. And so this is going to be an exercise in, in careful thinking and in careful interpretation of Scripture. Uh, but also, on top of all that, it's a practical book. It's an encouraging book. And we'll, we'll talk about uh, the, the, the theme and the recipients and all of that here uh, before we jump in. The book of Hebrews is a letter, uh, much like Ephesians or Galatians or Philippians, but it does not have a traditional structure to it. Uh, most letters have a salutation at the beginning that says, this is so-and-so writing to the saints in such-and-such -such a city. And, uh, and you get a sense for who it's written to and who is writing it. Who wrote the book of Hebrews? Does anybody know? No, no. no good answer. I'm glad no one just shouted out an answer. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. There's been a lot of speculation about who wrote the book of Hebrews. Um, in church history, the popular opinion was Paul. Um, but uh, there's some questions with that. It doesn't seem like a typical Pauline letter. It doesn't sound like Paul very much when you compare it to his other letters. Um, and so uh, that's not as much of a popular answer now. Um, does anyone know some of the other th theorized uh, uh, authors? Apollos. Apollos. And Apollos is an intriguing option because he was eloquent in, uh, in everything leading up to John. In other words, he was well-versed in the Old Testament. And then Aquila and Priscilla come and they share with him the good news of Jesus Christ. And so that's kind of cool when you think, ooh, like he knew his Old Testament well, and then he saw how it tied in with Christ, which is basically what the book of Hebrews is all about. So Apollos is an option. Anyone know any other ones? Barnabas, Barnabas is one. Luke is, is an option that some people have thrown out there. Even some people think Aquila and Priscilla 
uh, wrote the book. And all of these are pure speculation. These are all just, you know, scholars going like, what about this? I don't know. And <laughs> there's, there's literally no reason or historical basis for saying it's one of these or other. It's just kind of like, hey, this could work. We're not sure. So we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. And so throughout this, I'll refer to the author as the author of Hebrews. Who was it written to other than Hebrews? All right. Do we know city, country? We actually don't know. That's another trick question. Yeah, we don't know. All right. There was, since because there's no recipient in the salutation, we don't know exactly where it was directed. And in fact, the title, Letter to the Hebrews, is more based on the content of the book than anything else. Right? So we look at the book, and it's, well, there's a lot of Old Testament truths here, and it seems to be written to, to people that are well-versed in Judaism and, and all that. And so it would make sense that these are written to the Hebrews. All right, so that's why it's called Letter to the Hebrews, um, because of the content of the book. So we don't know who wrote it. We don't know specifically who it was written to, but we do have a sense of the type of group that uh, the author was writing to. It seems to be written to a church with a strong Jewish background, as I mentioned. Most likely, this is a group of Christians that are experiencing trials and are soon to be experiencing tougher trials. Hebrews 12.4 says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Um, and it talks about in that same chapter how you're being, you know, the Lord ch loves whom he chastens. And so there's a, there does seem to be an idea that this, uh, this church is experiencing trials and, um, and he, they're seeking comfort in that. There seems to be an indication that they're tempted to maybe return to their old Jewish customs or perhaps modify their be Christian belief to make it less offensive, and uh, which is, I think, where all the, the warning passages often factor in uh, as, uh, as we go throughout the book. But what's the message of the book? Th those of you who maybe have read the book already or maybe already have a familiarity with it, what would you say are some of the big ideas or themes that you find in the book of Hebrews? Kristen. Jesus is better. Well, there we go. We got it. Um, that's, 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 that's one of the big ones. Yeah, if not the biggest one. David. Jesus is king. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As he, is, he is supreme. He is king. What, else, what other descriptions of Jesus do we see in which he is better? He's a better high priest. Anyone, anything else? He is the fulfillment of the law. Yep. <clears throat> He, is, he is, uh, talks about he's the better sacrifice, the final sacrifice. He ushers in a better covenant. Um, and so all of these things, um, here in chapter 1, we will see he is better than angels. Uh, chapter 2, he's better than Moses. And so all of these uh, things point to the superiority of Jesus Christ. Um, there's a huge connection between Old Testament, uh, Old Testament doctrine and truths and how they tie to Jesus Christ. Um, Jesus is the culmination of God's revelation and is superior and is the final sacrifice um, and high priest that's anticipated in the Old Testament. So if we were to kind of boil down everything that uh, we just said, both what the audience is going through and what the book is talking about, we could say that because Jesus is superior, you can hold firm to him in difficult times. Because Jesus is superior, you can hold firm to him in difficult times. And we'll see that theme uh, play out throughout the book. What we're going to do as we approach this book is I'm going to try to go as far as I can 
in a given evening. And then when the time is up, we'll put a marker by that verse and we'll say we'll be back here next week, okay? So, and hopefully we, go, we don't go further than I have studied for that week, all right? So <laughs> don't go too fast. I'll, I will start waxing eloquent if we reach that point, all right? Uh, so we'll, we'll dig in. And again, just like with the Psalms, this is going to be very interactive. And so feel free to, to raise your hand, ask questions, uh, provide comments or insight. Um, if, if there's a cross-reference that you see, like this, you know, this passage came to mind when we read this verse. Raise your hand and throw that out there. That's always really neat to see the connections throughout Scripture. Um, but what we're going to do now is we're going to dig into chapter 1, uh, Hebrews chapter 1, and see how far we get. And it doesn't take long before we see the theme of the book. Let's start by just reading Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much, as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. As I mentioned, the, the, this is a very unusual introduction to a New Testament letter. No salutation, no greeting, there's no opening prayer. We just jump straight into the content. And where is the first verb? Where do we find the first verb in the book? Spoke. God spoke. And we see that continued in verse 2, but in these last days, he has spoken. So the author of Hebrews wants to begin his entire book by pointing to the revelation of God. Now, in our study in Psalms, we talked about two different types of revelation. There is general revelation, and there is special revelation. Which type of revelation is he talking about here? I think I heard it. It is special revelation. Why do we say that? General revelation is God revealing himself through creation, through nature. Right? It's non-propositional. It's not word-based. It is, it is through what he has made. Special revelation is talking about his words, him revealing himself through the spoken words. So how do we know he's talking about special revelation here? Well, in, in times past, he spoke by the prophets. In the last days, he spoke by his son. So we're talking about special revelation. In verses 1 and 2, form a contrast of sorts describing how God has spoken throughout the ages. So I'm going to highlight a phrase, and you find for me the contrasting phrase in verse 2. All right? So the first phrase, long ago. Where is the contrasting phrase in verse 2? In these last days. Good. Uh, This one's a little bit harder. At many times and in many ways. So he's talking about the frequency and the manner in which he spoke long ago. Where would the contrasting idea here be? Uh, Yes, in a way, but there's also, uh, that wouldn't be the most direct. This one's hidden, all right? So that's why I say it's a tricky one. Um, As many times and in many ways in the last days, but in these last days, he has spoken, implied by his son. In other words, 
is done, right? It's final one time through his son, not in many times and in many ways. Long ago, frequently in different modes, these last times, one way. God spoke, okay? To our fathers is the next phrase. What's the contrasting phrase in verse 2? To us. And then finally, by the prophets, by his son. What you could do here, really, is say, here's the Old Testament. Here's the New Testament. That's the, re that's the relationship you can say between these two forms of revelation. And this points to a term, when we talk about revelation, called progressive revelation. Can anyone tell me what progressive revelation means? Good. Yeah, so God did not give the entire Bible at the very beginning. Um, he, he progressively revealed his truth throughout the ages. So in the Old Testament, there's promises about the Messiah. It points to something, but it doesn't give all of the information about the Messiah until the Messiah comes himself. And so God has progressively been revealing his truth throughout the ages. And the difference between Old Testament and New Testament isn't a matter of false versus true or bad to good, but really promise to fulfillment. Or you could say shadow to substance. This is, this is God's plan that he has been revealing himself throughout time and it's culminating to something. It is pointing to something and it's ultimately going to be revealed by his son. And here's what the author is trying to tell his readers at the beginning. What God revealed to you long ago through the prophets was anticipating this full and final revelation through his son. Now, if this is a group of Jewish readers who love the law, which verse would they be most, they would be tempted to be most attracted to? Verse one or verse two? Verse one, right? The Old Testament traditions and laws and practices and rituals. So what's the author trying to do here? He's saying, do you realize that all that stuff long ago was pointing to something better, just to an ultimate fulfillment? We see the variety that in times past he spoke in many different ways. Um, he spoke through visions. He spoke through the law. He spoke through revealing himself, right, in the burning bush and things like that. But in these last days, there's one key way that God revealed himself, and it's by his son. Everything is pointing to this. And so the appeal is you need to listen to Jesus. If you value the Old Testament truth, you need to listen to Jesus. An interesting anecdotal story that we read of in Matthew 17, 1 through 5, and we looked at this in the Gospel of Mark as well. This is the Mount of Transfiguration. When Jesus was standing on the Mount of Transfiguration with, uh, with the other a couple apostles, who appeared with Jesus? Do you remember? Moses, Moses and Elijah. And, uh, and, and, and many people think that, that they almost kind of represent the, the law and the prophets, right? Moses, the writing of the law. Elijah was like the prototypical prophet. And they were all speaking together. And then 
when Peter pipes up and says, let's build some tents, right? Uh, this voice booms from the, the cloud saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And so God the Father is pointing to Jesus and saying, listen to my son. And this is the same idea that the author of Hebrews is trying to communicate. God's been speaking throughout all time, but, but there's one final and full revelation, and it's in Jesus Christ. So now he has an argument to make. How can he prove that the word of the Son is superior and final in comparison to the words of the prophets? So he's, and this is one thing you have to do. When you read Old, New Testament epistles, you have to recognize there's an argumentation to it that the author is trying to bring his readers to a conclusion, and often he will use argumentative and, 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 and rational tactics to get you there. And so we have to ask ourselves, how is he going to prove that we must listen to the Son and that the Son has the final word? Well, he does that in verses 2, 3, and 4. So here we see his Son, right? He's highlighting the Son of God. And we see a bunch of pronouns here. He appointed the heir of all things. He created. He is the radiance. He upholds. He sat down. He has inherited a more excellent name. All of these pronouns are referring to Jesus Christ. All right? Except this one is probably the father, so we'll cross that one out. He appointed the son, the heir of all things. This is what the author is going to do. He just made a statement. He said, the word of the Son is final. And now he's going to lay out the Son of God's credentials and explain this is why you must listen to him. There are seven, all right? Where's the first credential? Heir of all things. Second one? Created the worlds. Here's the third one. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's made purification for sins. And now he has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he's going to highlight this is who Jesus is. Everything revolves around him. Let's go through these really briefly to see if we can understand these. The first one, he has appointed the heir of all things. This is an allusion to Psalm chapter 2, verse 8, which is a prophetic messianic psalm. And in that psalm, we read this, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. He's saying that all of creation, the whole universe, belongs to Jesus. It's his world. Right? He's the heir of all things. It's his universe. But not only that, but he also created the world. Through whom, right, if we're going to highlight the references to Jesus, Jesus is right there. Jesus is the agent of creation. Do you, do you, do you think of Jesus as being there in the creation? Yes, Stephanie. John 1, 1 through 3. Absolutely. The, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. In fact, it goes on to continue how he, was, he had a role in creation. Good. Another cross-reference here is Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. 
Colossians chapter 1, 16 through 17 says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So Jesus is the heir of all things, all things are for him, and he's the creator of all things, all things are made through him. What do we take from this? Okay, like I said, you're living in Jesus' universe. You're living on his planet. You belong to him. Do you see this as your life in your world or his life in his world? He is elevating Jesus Christ and saying he is superior. He is the heir of all things. He is the creator of all things. Verse 3 is a fascinating verse that points to the character of God or the character of, of, of the Son. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Now, how would you contrast the word radiance with this word? Which one's better? Radiance, right? So if you think of it in terms of the sun versus the moon, right? The moon would be a reflection of the sun's light. Is that what Jesus is? Is he just a reflection of God's light? He's not, right? So if reflection is like the moon, then radiance is like the sun. The original. The original. S-O-S-U-N, right? S-U-N, sun. This is what the author is saying. Not that Jesus is a reflection of the light. He is, he is the source of light. It's like the light rays shining from the source. It's like looking directly into the sun. S-U-N, all right? This is, this is, he is the radiance of the glory of God. It's not that he gives some, some faint impression of the glory of God. He is the radiance of it. So what is he pointing to? He's pointing to the deity of Jesus Christ. That this Jesus, this son of God is God. And this is continued in verse 4, where he says he is the exact imprint of his nature. Can anyone think of a helpful analogy to describe the idea of being the exact imprint of his nature? A coin is a good one, right? And so you have the mold and the coin, and the coin is a perfect representation of the mold. Or you think of a, a signet ring and a seal, like in hot wax. It's a perfect representation of the seal. Exact imprint, the, the very essence of his nature. Colossians chapter 1.15 describes it this way, that he is the image of the invisible God. In John chapter 14, verse 9, Jesus himself said this, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father, right? I, I, if you've seen me, you've seen him. I'm the exact imprint of his nature. I am the representation in bodily form of God himself. He is the exact imprint of his nature. And so for anyone who tries to argue that Jesus is some lesser form of deity, that he's somehow a, just an angelic being, or he's not truly God, these verses blow those out of the water, that, that he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Number five, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is incredible. Not only is Jesus the creator, but he sustains the universe 
with his powerful word. Again, going back to Colossians chapter 1, verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You know, we think of Jesus, especially going through the Gospel of Mark, as kind of a, you know, a humble and lowly figure. He suffers, he dies. And that's, that is his role when he's, on, when, he, when he's here on this earth. But Scripture points to Jesus as someone who's not only creator, but he's keeping the world spinning. He is sustaining the planet. He is holding the course of history. And he sustains all things by his word. Now remember the main point he's trying to communicate here. God spoke in times past by the prophets. He spoke now by his son. God the Son has the final word. And so here he's, he's showing how powerful the word of the Son truly is. As we continue on, we start to see his, sal- his saving work. He makes purifications for sins. And this, he hints here at a theme that will be fleshed out in great detail later, that only he is able to make purification once for all for our sins. In once he made that purification. What did he do? He sat down. Now, does anyone know um, the significance of Christ sitting down after he accomplished his work? Right. Yeah, the priests. That's right. Uh, it's, it's famous. He said there were no chairs in the temple. Right? Why? Because the work was never done. That there was always sacrifices to be made. In fact, the book of Hebrews points to this very fact. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 through 14. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 through 14. You're welcome to, if you have your Bible, you can flip ahead to there. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 through 14. And every high priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God. And so the high priest stood daily. Christ made one sacrifice and sat down. And so this is a purifying work and this is a final work that Christ accomplished. And he's sitting at the right hand at the throne on high. Any questions or comments so far? I just breezed through just, you know, 15 weeks of doctrinal truth, all right? Yeah, Paul. And we better hope that he never gives up his power, otherwise everything will fly apart. That's exactly right. We are, we are taking in breaths right now by his grace. Yeah. Anything else? Verse 4 He sat down, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Uh, This word superior, or really better, uh, is repeated 13 times in the book of Hebrews. And it's going to come up again and again and again, going back to what, uh, what Kristen mentioned, right? The book of Hebrews talking about how Jesus is better. Here's just some, you don't have to write these down, but here's just a, a rundown of some of those. Jesus has, offers a better hope. Hebrews 7.19, the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced. 
he offers a better covenant. Hebrews 7, verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. He has obtained a better ministry. Hebrews 8, 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old. He's a better sacrifice. Hebrews 9, verse 23. He offers that there's a better possession. Hebrews 10, 34, for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Those of faith have a better country that they look for in Hebrews 11. And, uh, and then there's a better life offered in Hebrews 11, verse 35. And here in verse 4, he says, Jesus is better than angels. And here's an interesting thing. For the rest of the chapter, he is going to lay out this very long uh, argument as to why Jesus is better than angels. I mean, he's just going to pound this again and again. Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than angels. Why in the world would he spend so much time on that idea? Roxanne. I have a question. Yeah. It's a possibility. Um, and it, alluding to that passage I just referenced, right? That you accepted the plundering of your property. Uh, that obviously is pointing to a trial that they experienced, right? That they were losing their physical possessions, their material possessions. Um, and so that would, I'd say that you could definitely include that in the trials, although we don't know the specific situation. Why do you think he is making a big deal about angels? Yes? Okay, so that we see some weakness in, you know, some, uh, some truths about angels that, are, that make them less powerful or perfect than, than, than God. Yes? That's a possibility. Um, we, that's never spelled out clearly in the book of Hebrews, but uh, the book of Colossians, um, which actually is after Mark, is the next book. Whoops, I want to go through on Sunday mornings. Here goes my pen. Um, book of Colossians points to the fact that there were some that were being deceived with this weird uh, false teaching that combined both Judaistic practices and the worship of angels. Um, and so there's a possibility that that might have been sneaking in uh, to this church as well. And so he's trying to show how Christ is better than angels to put down that thinking. David. A lot of times in the Old Testament, God used angels to communicate. Mm -hmm. And many times people realize, oh, that was not just an angel. Yeah. That was something better than an angel. Okay. And so it may be uh, making sure that they understand Christ's position relative to those revered appearances of angels and that maybe he's really equal with when the angel was actually God himself. Yeah, the angel of the Lord, those appearances, right? Um, you point to the fact that how the angels in the Old Testament were often bringing messages to them, and that... Is, is starting to point at what I think he's, the, what he's trying to get at here. Because remember the main idea, right? God spoke in times past in many ways by the prophets. This time he spoke to us by his son. And I think it's going to be connected to this, um, the message uh, that angels declare versus what the one that God declares. Ron, did you have something there? Uh, it kind of tells us that uh, Jesus' word is superior, mm -hmm. but it doesn't tell us angels' word is superior. Okay, yeah. Right? Yes? When, he, when he's talking about the, the angel of his face, when, well, in, in the ancient times, God was talking to, to all. 
Abraham. Mm -hmm. that, that, that's the, that's the, the purpose of Christ now. I mean, the angel of the faith was Christ. The angel of the Lord was... The uh, angel of his faith. The what? The angel of his faith. You know, uh, I don't know if in, in the Bible it says that the angel of his faith that talked to Abraham. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, so, so there, there's a situation in which, which the term that, that, I, that I am familiar with in reference to that would be the angel of the Lord who appeared to Abraham and Lot and things like that uh, seem to be pointing to, it might actually be a, a, re, a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. That's, that's, that's revealing himself. But, but so the, here's, here's where I think he's going with this. And actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cheat and I'm going to skip down to the beginning of chapter 2 to reveal the answer. All right? And this kind, of, this kind of messes up the author's line of argumentation because he wants to kind of hold out. He wants you to agree with the fact that Jesus is better than angels before he kind of drills home a point. But I'm going to show you the point he drills home first, okay? So if you skip down to chapter 2, what's the first word? Therefore. Therefore okay? So everything in verse 5 down to the end of chapter 1 is Jesus is better than angels. Here's a reason, here's a reason, here's a reason, here's a reason. Chapter 1 Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So what is he saying here? Well, first we have to ask this question. What was the message declared by angels? Does anyone know? This is kind of a tough one. If you know this, you get bonus points. What's that? The message, angels did declare that message, absolutely. He used angels to declare Christ is here, Christ is coming. But this is in reference to, to a particular message that would be a particular, uh, um, it'd be particularly pertinent to this group of people. Um, anyone have any ideas? If you don't, that's, that's totally fine. I had to look this up. All right. Yes. No, I don't think so. So the message declared by angels, it was reliable, it says. And every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution. So there's a weight to it. And if you disobeyed this message, there was punishments involved. Okay? So, what's the message? You can write in the margin two passages. Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, and Acts 7, 52 through 53. Alright? Galatians 3, 19 says this. Why then do we have the law? It was added because of the transgressions until the offspring, Jesus, should come to whom the promise had been made. And it, the law, was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Okay? Another passage, Acts chapter 7, verse 52 through 53. This is uh, Stephen before he is stoned and killed. Uh, is preaching to, the, to, to the, the religious leaders. He says this, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? 
and they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, these are the, really the only two verses clearly in Scripture where it points to angels being part of the deliverance of the law. But I believe this is why, this is what, whoops, this is what is being referred to here when it says the message declared by angels. Because it's proved to be reliable. If you disobey it, there's a just retribution. And we see this also carried out in these other two verses. So, this is what he's saying. If the law, which is what the angels declared, was reliable, verse 3 How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So, this is the conclusion based off the argumentation he had in verse chapter 1. Jesus is better than angels. Okay, so let's follow the logic. Jesus is better than angels. The angels gave a message. Jesus gave a message. We had to pay attention to the angels' message. So what? We should pay all the more attention to Jesus' message. Verse 1, therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard. So we're circling back to the very beginning. God spoke at many times and in many ways through the prophets, but now Jesus has the final word. Remember, his readers treasure the Old Testament law. They know the Old Testament law. So he doesn't lead with that. He doesn't say, Jesus' word is superior to the word delivered by angels, the law. He doesn't leave with that. What does he start with? He makes them agree that Jesus is better than angels. And he spends a whole lot of time proving that to the point where his readers can't escape the reality, of course Jesus is far superior to the angels. And now when he has his readers at that point, what does he do? If that's true, then Jesus' message is superior to the message of the angels. Right? You see where he's going with that? Any questions, comments on that? Yeah, yeah. And that's a sense in which he is superior, right? Uh, that it, the, the law, it's, and this isn't saying that the message declared by angels, the law was, was incorrect or, 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 or bad because it proved to be reliable, right? It's a good message, but it's pointing to the fulfillment in Christ. David. So who's, who's the hand of, or what is the hand of the mediator in that Galatians passage? Through angels by an intermediary? Uh, probably referring to Moses would be my guess there. Yeah. Any other questions? All right. Now that I gave away, I showed his hand, all right, where he's going, we'll go back up and see the argument, all right? So he has become much more superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And he's going to rattle off quotation after quotation from where? The Psalms, which is in the Old Testament. Right? So he's, he's using the Old Testament to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Right? So here's how he, he argues it. Verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Implied, none of them. God never said that to angels. This is from Psalm 2. 
verse 7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. We should be familiar with the psalm, right? We studied the psalm. This is a coronation psalm for the Davidic king. And it has messianic significance as readers anticipated a future Davidic king who would reign the throne, on the throne forever. We see in Mark and the other gospels, when Jesus was baptized, a voice from heaven says, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And so this is something that the Father says to the Son. God never said this to the angels. They never received such a title. Therefore, Jesus is greater than angels. All right, second quotation, <coughs> second quotation in verse 5. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. This is 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. The context of this passage is the Davidic covenant, when, when God promises to King David to keep someone, a descendant, on his throne forever. And as in Psalm 2-7, this promise for David's line finds its fulfillment in the future Messiah. Again, his argument here is the Father did not say this to any of the angels. Jesus has a better title than the angels. Okay, He's the Son. Angels never got that. This is why verse 4 says, as the name he inherited is more excellent than their name. Verse 6, again, he, when he brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. This is a little tougher to find the reference for this, uh, for this verse, but the most similar wording that we find is in Psalm 97, verse 7, which says, all worshipers of images are put to shame, who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. In the Septuagint version, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and whenever you see a Old Testament quotation in the New Testament, they're most often quoting from the Septuagint. The Septuagint version says, worship him, all you angels. Right? And oftentimes, angels are referred to in the lower G, lowercase g, gods terminology. So, this is a call to worship God. So, if angels are worshiping God, then obviously angels are not superior to God. All right? And if this is referring to Jesus, the firstborn, who is it referring to in the psalm? God, the Lord, Yahweh, right? So, who is he equating here? Jesus is God. Verse 7, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers flames of fire. This is a quotation of Psalm 104, verse 4. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flame of fire. So, how does he describe angels? They're simply ministers. They are servants. That's their role. But of the Son, verse 8, he says, now check this out. Of the Son, he says, your throne, oh God. Look at that. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. 
You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. He does it again in verse 10. And you, Lord, which if you read the Old Testament quotation of this psalm, which would be Psalm 102, Verse 25 through 27. If you read that psalm, that's referred to uppercase Lord, Yahweh. And so in both of these quotations, he's taking quotations of the Old Testament in reference to God, Yahweh, the Lord, and then referring them to Jesus. Again, clear, clear, clearly elevating Christ as God in flesh. They will perish, you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe, you will roll them up like garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your ears will have no end. So he elevates Jesus as the creator, the sustainer, the unchanging God of the universe. Then, verse 13, as we near the end of his argumentation here, Psalm 110 Verse 1, Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And he asks the question, to which of the angels has he ever said that? He ever said that to an angel? Of course he's never said that to an angel. He's only said that to his anointed son. Verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits, talking about the angels, sent out to serve who? Us. Those who inherit salvation. So he's saying, listen, this is what angels are. This is what they're called to do. They are ministering spirits sent out by God to actually serve those who are inheriting salvation, you and me. And again, he's making this whole point from the Old Testament to simply drive home the point. Jesus is better than angels. Why does that matter? Because to the people reading this letter, you have the Old Testament law delivered by angels, and it's reliable. And you should pay attention to that message. But if you pay attention to that message, how can you ignore the message that Jesus brings? You need to pay actually closer attention to what you have heard. And what have we heard? The message of Jesus Christ. And what's the warning? Lest we drift away. Lest we drift away. Who gets distracted easily? Raise your hand. (laughs) The rest of you were distracted to answer. Um, What motivates you to pay attention and listen? What's that? Fear. Fear, that's right. Okay, what are some other motivations? It's something you're interested in. Okay, yeah. So, so you're distracted, you get easily distracted, and, but when that one topic that you're passionate about comes up, you're locked in, right? So it's something you're interested in. What else? What else motivates you? The word. The word. Well, that's a good answer. Absolutely, it should. This is normal day-to-day life. What are, the, what are the motivators that keep your attention locked in? Beneficial. It's beneficial. So you see the benefit of it, right? This is something that will benefit me if I listen. I want to please God and do the right thing. Right, yeah. So there's the, there's the motivation to, to honor the Lord. You said profitable? Yeah, good. What else? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, the danger of standing still. Um, yeah, it could be something important. Or if you realize this, my life depends on this, right? Like, I don't feel, I've never done this, but if you've gone, you know, skydiving, right? And the instructor is giving the instructions. You're paying attention right, to every little detail. Why? Because, you know, if I miss something here, I, I could lose my life, right? So, so when you get a grasp for how serious it is, you pay attention. And so this is what he's being, everything he just said, all right? All of chapter one, God has spoken, and he's spoken through his son. Are you listening to him? Are you paying attention, right? And then he has this big, long treatise about how he's better than angels, and here he gets to his application. Side note, you know what? Scripture often gives the application for us, and, and that's something that you really need to keep in mind when you're reading Scripture. Before you try to find, what, how should this apply to me? Sometimes you realize it gives it to you, right? And here, and here chapter 2, verse 1, is the application of chapter 1. All this is true, therefore pay attention to what you have heard. Pay close attention. And the warning is, lest we drift away. Our humans, our human, the tendency of our human hearts is to drift away from the truth of God's word. The law is reliable. It's serious. I mean, if you want to see how serious the law was, just go to the Old Testament and read about the curses of disobeying the law. And it's serious stuff. Okay? If you read that, you would be shaking in your boots. Verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? We, we don't, in our gospel presentations, our gospel witnesses, we don't usually approach it with something like, believe the gospel or else. <laughs> that's not the most winsome approach. But that's kind of what he's saying here, right? How will you escape? If you neglect this gospel that Jesus came to deliver, that he gave his life to give to you, that he left his throne and, and, and brought salvation to you, and you decide not to pay attention to that, you drift away from that gospel, you neglect that great salvation, how in the world will you escape? You have, just, you have rejected the only source of life. And I think this is a really important thing for us to keep in mind. You know what? Sometimes we do this with our gospel presentations. Well, just give God a try, right? I think you'll find that if you believe in Jesus, your life will be just a lot better, right? So just, you know, take it or leave it. Think about, think about following Jesus, and, uh, and, and maybe you'll be happy that you did, right? That's not what it's saying in Hebrews, is it? It's saying, this, this is good news, no doubt about it, that, that Jesus died for your sins, and he's, he's made the way, and he's made, offered purification for your sins, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne on high. That's incredibly good news, but realize, if you, you reject it, you neglect it, you ignore it, there's no escape from that. It's like drowning in an ocean and rejecting the life raft that is thrown to you. And so there's some seriousness to this. There's some weight to this. And he's trying to help his, his readers see, don't neglect it. The message of the gospel is the most important message you will ever receive. Any thoughts or comments on this? Yes.
No, I don't so think so. No, I don't think so. No, that's the, the, the wear out is talking about creation. Uh, where earlier on it says, okay. yep, yeah, they, they perish, but you remain. Uh, that is in reference, I kind of skipped a verse, which kind of made it confusing. They will perish is in reference to the work of your hands. Okay. Right? So creation will wear out. Yeah, <laughs> no, nope, there's still angels around. In fact, later on in Hebrews 13, it says you've been shown hospitality and some of you have entertained angels unaware, right? So yes, angels are still, still kicking. They're still around. They haven't faded out. Anything else? Yes, Mike. You know what's interesting is today, there's so many people that don't know Jesus, but they believe in angels. Mm -hmm. You know, and they, and they just forever, you know, angels, and this is a good way to maybe help them understand, well, if you believe angels and you think they're so powerful, yeah. and you think of this or that, Read this. That's a good point. I like that. There's a lot of spiritual people, right? Oh, yeah. yeah, I'm spiritual. I, you know, there, there, there's, no, there's no problem denying the reality of a supernatural realm and spirits and all that stuff. No problem acknowledging that for many people, especially in our culture right now. Um, but when it comes to the sun, no, 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 no. And, and yeah, you're right. This actually could be that, uh, a good passage to kind of to, to argue against that. Good. Anything else? Yeah. Where's this drift away? Is that uh, referring to salvation or something? Aha, yes. That's, uh, there's going to be, and like I mentioned, there's going to be multiple passages of Scripture in Hebrews that talk about fall away, drift away, and it, in context, it sounds like falling away from salvation. Um, and we will dig into those deeply. So I, won't, I don't have time to answer that fully, but it's a teaser of what we're going to get into. Um, right now, I'll say that there is, when you are saved, you are saved, right? And you are, you are held by Christ, and he, he will not let you go. Um, we're going to get into the, the reality that in the next couple chapters, pretty soon in the book of Hebrews, where there's a type of professing Christian that um, isn't, truly, uh, isn't truly someone of faith. And, 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 and they fall away. And we'll see that play out. Um, but but it's, I think it's a warning to, to anyone, right? Like, like, none of us should be so arrogant as to say, I'm fine, I'll never, you know, I'll just kind of keep cruising. We want to pay close attention. That's what we want to take from this. Um, we know we're saved, but we want to pay close attention and not neglect such a great salvation. Yeah. Yeah, First John. Yeah, that would be a good cross-reference. And there's a passage, I think it's in chapter 3 or 4, uh, where the first warning passage really uh, uh, comes along, and we'll dig into that deeply. Um, we will stop there um, with this quick note. Uh, verse 3 and 4, after talking about the great salvation, here he describes the, the reliability of Jesus' message. It was de declared first by the Lord, so that's Jesus. It was attested to us by those who heard. Who do you think this is? The disciples. Yeah, the disciples, the apostles, right? Which actually points to the fact that the reader, the writer of Hebrews probably was not a direct eyewitness of Jesus because those who heard attested to us, including himself, 
Um, and so that points to the fact that it, might, it probably is not a direct eyewitness. Um, verse four, while God bore witnesses bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. What's he saying here? That this message of the gospel, as the apostles declared it, was backed up. And it was backed up by signs and wonders and miracles and spiritual gifts. And we see that in the book of Acts, don't we? When, when they declare the message, these signs are accompanied with them to give credibility uh, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Acts 2.43, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Why does he point this out? That God brings a message through his son. It was validated by the apostles, and through the signs accompanying them, it was brought to you. Pay close attention. It is an authoritative message that you must listen to. Our human hearts tend to drift away from the message of Jesus. Don't let it. Later on in the book of Hebrews, we're going to see that the recipients have become dull of hearing. And they're infants regarding the word. And in context, they're facing trials, and they're about to face more difficult trials. That's a really dangerous place to be. If you are dull of hearing, and you're an infant in spiritual things, and you're about to go headlong into serious trials. And that's why the author is like, would you pay attention? Will you realize what you have? Don't drift back to, to, to the old way, to the, to the old covenant. Realize the message that you've been given and hold fast to that because you're going to need it. And you're going to be facing difficult trials and that's all the more reason to hold fast to the message of the gospel and thank God that he has revealed it to us. So, we made it through chapter one and the beginning of chapter two. I am quite pleased with myself. Um, <laughs> but circling back to the very beginning, God spoke, and he spoke by his son. And we have the privilege of having his complete and full revelation and ultimately fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ that we can open and read and be changed by each and every day. So pay attention, don't neglect it, and pay careful heed to it. Let's pray. Yes. Yeah, go ahead. Um, would you say that it's accurate that the knowledge of God is equivalent to do what he says, obey Yes, I, yeah. I, I think to say I know him and don't do what he says is you're, you're a liar, right? And so there is a knowledge of God, a true knowledge of God includes a following of God. Absolutely. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. And uh, God, I pray that you guide us through this study. We, we looked at a lot tonight. We looked at a lot of truth. But I pray that the, 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 the takeaway that the, the, the writer has for us through your spirit uh, stays at home with us, that we would pay careful heed to the message of Jesus Christ, that we would not drift away from what we have heard, that we would not grow lazy and dull in hearing, but that we would cling to the message of Jesus because we don't know what trials may be in front of us. We, might, we don't know what the future holds. We need your word. We need your truth. Lord, we thank you for giving us your truth that we can look into. And I pray that we would stay rooted in it and cling to it.